Hello, here we go with the English series Agenda Publica Conversations, the podcast where you can listen to the conversation among experts on different topics in the fields of current global politics and economics. Enjoy! Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of Agenda Publica Conversations. I am Pablo Suantes, Brussels corresponding with the Spanish Daily El Mundo and a long-time devout reader and listener of Agenda Publica. It's really my pleasure being here today with you. I hope you all had a Merry Christmas and we want to wish you a Happy New Year too. This long 2020 put the bar quite low, so I'm pretty confident that 2021 is going to be way better. Today we are talking about Europe and we have the honor and privilege to have two exceptional guests, two great connoisseurs of the European Union from the academia and the political world and to Finnish fellows too. Let me introduce them to you. Anu Bradford is the Henry L. Moses Professor of Law and International Organization at the University of Columbia in New York. She's a leading scholar on the US regulatory power and a sharp commentator on the State of the Union. Anu coined in 2012 the term the Brussels effect to describe the European Union outsized influence on the world and very recently she published the Brussels effect, how the European Union rules the world. It's been named one of the best books of 2020 by Foreign Affairs. In the other corner we have Alex Stubb. It's not easy at all to summarize the life of someone who has been everything in Europe before reaching the age of 50. Alex is the director of the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute in Florence. He has served as a Prime Minister, Finance Minister, Foreign Affairs Minister, Trade and Europe Minister on Finland. And he was a member of the European Parliament from 2004 to 2008. There's more, because he was in Romanus Prodi's team at the European Commission and he was involved in the negotiations of the treaties of Amsterdam, Nice and Lisbon. And he was as well the runner-up in the EPP's Spitzenkandidat process before the 2018 European election. So there's probably no one in the history of the Union who knows the institution and the functioning of the European Union better than he does. Today, we're going to address many critical issues for the present and the future of the Union. 2020 has been a challenger, a difficult year, and we all look to the very next few months with hope and perhaps too much faith. The 27 have managed to approve the multinational financial framework and the recovery package of 750 billion euros. They have stood together during the toughest moments of Brexit, and now they look at Washington with more, more tranquility. But the future is anything but easy. So let's get started. And what for Alex Stubb, thank you very much for joining us today. 2020 has been a hard year, a really hard one. It started really bad for the EU, with this lack of coordination and lack of solidarity in the beginning of the pandemic and a big crisis of confidence among member states. Things got better over time in terms of joint efforts and we saw how this time, facing a huge crisis, solutions were found in just months economic, sanitary, or even related to the vaccines, exactly what was missed in 2010, 12, or 15. But there were additional challenges, like Brexit, Donald Trump's pressure, or Turkey, just to name a few, challenges that compromise the position of the Union in the world. The most common analyses of Europe are very cynical or pessimistic. You know, the EU lacks a single voice, strength, or it's not a real power. But there are also other types of approaches that offer a different and interesting perspective, another angle and we are going to address them now. Anu, 
You coined the time in 2012 and now you wrote a book. What's this thing you call the Brussels effect? Yeah, so with the Brussels effect, I refer to the European Union's unilateral ability to regulate the global marketplace. The EU is one of the largest and wealthiest consumer markets in the world. And there are very few companies that can afford not to trade in the EU. So these global companies follow the EU rules as the price for accessing the single market. But often it is in their interest to extend these same rules to govern their global conduct and global business uh, practices because they want to avoid the cost of complying with multiple different regulatory regimes. So it is these companies that then transpose these European regulations across the global marketplace, even though all the EU is doing is regulating the European market. You call it the Brussels effect, not the Brussels power or weapon. Why is that? What's the difference? Well, it is power, but it's a rather passive power. The EU is not imposing its regulations on anybody outside of the EU. It is really the logic of market forces and the self-interest of the global companies that lead them to decide that it is in their interest to follow these EU rules. So it is not assertive power in the way that we traditionally are accustomed to thinking about the power. So it is more of a market effect. And I guess the term is trying to encapsulate that key logic behind the dynamic that we are witnessing. Alex, you have been in every position in Brussels, all them, from the parliament to the commission through the council. Did you feel this effect while in office? Are leaders aware of it? Well, I sure did. And probably nowhere more so than in the European parliament, which is really uh, a regulatory superhouse, if you will. I mean, a lot of people don't understand that a European parliamentarian actually has a hell of a lot of power, but not too much responsibility because through what we call the co-decision procedure, if you get a big report on a particular issue, say, for instance, the issue of rule of law, which was so, so toughly negotiated in December, then you have a lot of power actually to regulate. And I, I mean, I, I read uh, Arnold's book uh, about well, a year ago, and, and I thought it's probably one of the best ways to encapsulate it. And I was actually quite happy that it was called the Brussels effect, because the alternative would have probably been to say, well, Brussels, a regulatory superpower. <laughs> and that's kind of a major turnoff. So it, it, it's sort of a tacit power. And that's what the effect is all about. And, you know, as, as a minister, as an MEP, I always felt that, that, hey, Brussels is doing this. Could you both try to explain how this Brussels effect is perceived abroad, in the US or China, mainly? It is true that journalists often focus on the discussions, the fight, the clashes of, let's say, Margarita Vestager with the big tags, the wars of Obama and Trump with the European Commission for Regulation of Trade. But at the same time, there is another facet, a certain fascination also in the US for this uh, regulatory power. I remember a long profile in the New York of Maria Zake, a former Deutsche MEP, uh, who now analyzes the situation of regulation in Silicon Valley, for example. Uh, what are really the reaction to this regulatory superpower? Uh, Invite, rage, admiration, all of them? So I would say that uh, in many instances, the Brussels effect has been very effective because it has operated under the radar. 
because it has been the kind of technocratic power that has not been subject to major political battles at the highest levels of the government. But um, occasionally, obviously, when there is a big competition case against major American tech companies or when a major regulation like the chemical regulation REACH is revealed or the GDPR, the data protection regulation, those regulations obviously make waves and not just in the EU, but uh, in the United States and beyond. And there is no denying that there are critics uh, that are quite concerned and blame that the EU is a regulatory imperialist or these regulations are impeding the ability of American firms to compete or that they um, constitute efforts uh, of protectionist Europe to unfairly um, infringe uh, the, the sovereignty of the United States and the commercial freedom of its companies. But at the same time, there are many uh, people, for instance, in the United States, average internet users and consumers who welcome the Brussels effect. They are quite happy to feel the effects of European regulation that protects their interest also in the policy domain where many in America feel that their own government has failed to protect them with adequate safeguards to protect the environment or consumer privacy or market competition. So in that sense, I don't think there is a uniform global response to the Brussels effect. It depends whom you're asking and what the specific regulation is. Yeah, and I guess that in many ways it's, it happens sort of on three levels or European regulation gets attacked on three levels. First is basically the industry who tries to guarantee its own interests in many ways, be it in chemicals or metals or data or whatever the case might be. You know, they sort of are there to try to consult the commission, which of course has the exclusive power to initiate regulation or, or legislation. So that's sort of a domestic affair. And I always used to say that, you know, if you're a European or a global business and you don't have a lobbyist in Brussels, you're not doing your business right. The second level of attack is, is usually, I mean, you could call it a national or a media attack in a sense, a feeling that, oh my God, Europe always over-regulates. You know, why are you regulating on cucumbers or why are you regulating on the odometers of two to three speed, two to three wheel motor vehicles, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And then, of course, you know the answer always is, well, you know, it's better to have one set of regulation rather than twenty-seven different sets of regulations, as we have member states. And then the third level attack is is the global attack and 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 sort of the outer attack. I think there's always been a certain dismay about European regulation. And yeah, as Anu said, you know, a fear that, you know, they're regulating in order to protect themselves. But actually, that's not what the European Union is doing, at least so far. It, you know, industrial policy might change. But so far, it's been pretty much about guaranteeing that the four basic freedoms of the internal market, in other words, the free movement of people, services, money and goods, works as smoothly as possible. And this, of course, then has a spillover effect. Uh, to global businesses as well. And the things uh, that hit the headlines are, of course, the big pieces for legislation, uh, you know, be it on, on, on data protection or, or, or be it on services or, or be it on chemicals. Uh, but there's a lot more regulation happening uh, all the time, which goes sort of unnoticed. And I think what's happening, and, and, and to a certain extent, Arnold's book, you know, highlights this, 
what's happening is people are now understanding that, wow, you know, we really do have this Brussels effect. And yes, wow, the European Union is a regulatory superpower. The big question, of course, here is, and I'm sure we'll get into this conversation, uh, what's going to happen with the three big regulatory blocks, the United States, China and the European Union? Will the European Union continue to be the boss of regulation and the trendsetter or will there be a Beijing effect or whatever the case might be? Yes, yes, we'll, we'll address that later. But I would rather focus now in, in the foundations. I mean, uh, the U.S. is not a military superpower, not a geopolitical main actor, at least in the terms that traditionally has been used in international relations. Uh, we are a trade superpower, a regulatory superpower, but is this good enough for the 21 century when multilateralism and free trade are in dispute in a way not seen in more than, let's say, 50, 60 years? Is this good enough? Or can be like becoming, I don't know, a chocolate producer superpower? Great, tasty, but actually powerless. Well, I mean, I, I run here in Florence at the European University Institute. I, I run a fairly new school or a center, which is called the School of Transnational Governance. So basically governance and regulation beyond the state. So my argument would have to be that, yes, I think it's, it's quite a strong prerogative to have. What I think happened um, in the past four years uh, during the presidency of Donald Trump and also with Brexit is that we saw a certain marginalization, voluntary marginalization of the Anglo-Saxon world. And basically when that happens, then you start seeing power vacuums emerging. And the question is, who is going to start filling those power vacuums? So, you know, on regulation, if it's, of course, always been Europe and the European Union. I think on climate and on, on trade, that's where the European Union is going to come in as well. Then there are issues, for instance, such as values, where the European Union uh, is going to be strong. But I think that the bottom line here is that, you know, the, the, the whole sort of idea of, of, of power over the uh, past decades has changed. You don't even really know where the line between war and peace goes anymore. You know, if there is an information war, uh, if there is meddling with elections, if there is some kind of an attack on, uh, say, data or data mining, you know, is that warfare or not? So I think what we have to start talking more about nowadays is smart power. And one part of smart power, I would argue, is, is, is regulation. Whether you call it chocolate regulation or not, I really don't know. Is it enough? You know, we're never going to live in a perfect world, uh, but the European Union is basically a hell of a lot more powerful than most people think. And by the way, I don't think that power can be counted only in tanks. Yeah, I would completely, yeah, I would completely agree with Alex. And I think in many ways, my book is an invitation to have a more nuanced conversation of what power means and what kind of power matters today. And in many ways, if you think about hard power, especially military power, it is extremely costly to deploy. Whereas regulatory power, it is something we've described it as a rather passive power. It is almost costless for the EU to deploy. It is the companies around the world that pay the cost of compliance in many ways, it is a power that is very difficult for others to undermine, even in a difficult geopolitical setting. So President Trump can walk away from the Paris Accord, from the Iran deal, from the World Health Organization, you name it, the list of long, list is long, but he cannot walk away from the Brussels effect. 
it is something that he cannot change the practices of global companies that voluntarily choose to follow the higher rules set by Brussels. And in many ways, it is also the kind of power that each and every one of us feel every day. The Brussels effect affects the food we eat, the air we breathe, and the products we produce and consume. So in many ways, I think it is tremendously relevant in affecting the everyday lives of individuals around the world. In the book, you make a strong, compelling argument demonstrating the existence and importance of this effect. Uh, but you dedicate as well a full chapter to a question that arises. Is this Brussels effect beneficial? Is it good? Because when we are talking about economy, we usually talk about the losers of globalization, for instance. Uh, who are the losers of this Brussels effect? So um, I, I think it is actually a very nuanced question whether, they, whether the Brussels effect is good for the world or not. And ultimately, I conclude in the book that even though it has um, losers, on balance, I think it uh, leaves us collectively better off. And, um, and I say that for uh, a, a few reasons. So one reason is that some of those uh, criticisms that Alex discussed, I think are rather misplaced. The idea that this would be a massive protectionist attempt to tilt the markets um, uh, in favor of the European companies. I would not call the Brussels effect a, a victorious story if it was an instrument for industrial policy, but I don't think it is. The same idea um, about the criticism that this is regulatory imperialism and an attempt to undermine the political autonomy of citizens around the world and, uh, and the sovereignty of foreign governments. Because in many ways, all the EU is doing is that it is regulating the single market, which it has the sovereign right to do. And it is then the voluntary choices by individual companies to uh, gravitate towards the Brussels rule that have made it so powerful internationally. So that's another example whereby I think the harsh criticism of the downside of the Brussels effect is somewhat misplaced. But the truth is that the European consumers' preferences do influence the markets outside of Europe, and everybody doesn't share those preferences. There are potentially products that are more expensive because they are more environmentally sustainable or they do uphold the fundamental right to privacy. And I don't deny that there are consumers in many parts of the world who would not want to pay for those values because they are not necessarily as deeply felt in all corners of the world. And um, there is also a concern on the, the relationship between regulation and innovation And um, especially, I have been concerned um, about the effect of the burdensome regulations on small companies. So the GDPR, which I very much support, I think somehow underlooked the extent to which they impose costs on small companies. Um, and that is something that I hope the EU is now taking to heart and trying to fix in the next set of regulations that it is getting ready to unveil in its newest attempts to regulate the big technology companies. And, you know, one of the interesting things, I think, just adding on to, to what Anna was saying, is this whole debate that we're starting to see now about what in Brussels language is called strategic autonomy or strategic sovereignty, and how far we want to start developing a European industrial policy. Of course, this debate, uh, I think, has been forced forward Uh, in the agenda for two reasons. One is that the United Kingdom 
uh, is leaving and has left the European Union. And second, because of the America first policies driven by Donald Trump. And you could argue that thirdly, because one could be perhaps a little bit suspicious about the way in which um, Chinese industrial policy, you might want to call it the Belt and Road Initiative or whatever it is called, has been penetrating the European market. And people starting to pose the question, well, you know, do we need our own control regimes? And then those on the liberal side of, of the argument, like myself, uh, would probably be a little bit skeptical and say, well, you know, this strategic autonomy could actually lead more to protectionism and protecting, say, big industry. It's a policy that France has been driving throughout its history, and now it's come to the forefront in a completely uh, new way. So it'll be also interesting to see how this debate develops uh, as we move along with the Brussels effect. It's such, a, uh, such an important debate, and I'm glad that Alex is, is raising it. So I share the fear that there now seems to be a shift in the tone of the conversation and this whole pursuit of a more geopolitical agenda, striving towards um, strategic autonomy, is giving more space for the voices, especially coming from France, that are calling for more of an industrial policy as the driver of European regulation. And I think that is a serious mistake. That is not going to be Europe's recipe towards greater competitiveness vis-a-vis -vis China or the United States. In many ways, there's a temptation among some to try to convert the Brussels effect into an instrument for industrial policy and use it in more geopolitical way. I think it is ill-suited for that kind of agenda. And that kind of agenda um, has potential to, the potential to really undermine the regulatory agenda that has served the European interest and its global standing well. And it also has the potential to export protectionism to other parts of the world. And, and, and soon I think the European Union would find itself being a promoter of the policies that can fundamentally undermine uh, its own interests. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I don't want to become a, you know, Europe first type of a internal market. That's when the biggest fears of some of the people think that we're fortress Europe uh, will come through. I woke up to this problem in, in 2016. I remember writing a piece in the Financial Times, which I rather provocatively called uh, for China, Europe is the new Africa. And my argument here was that uh, China was starting to mine data and companies in Europe, much like it was mining raw materials uh, in Africa. And my argument was that you, we should not become sort of knee-jerk protectionists on this, but we just have to understand that it's happening. And obviously we can't have faceless or state-driven Chinese companies uh, getting involved in companies such as Aikstron in Germany that has military intelligence. So we have to be aware of the issue, but not push it the full mile. And I think this will be probably the next big debate also in the internal market, even though people keep on saying that, you know, strategic autonomy or strategic sovereignty is all about security and military. I don't think it is because I think Europe needs to understand that we cannot escape the notion of geopolitics anymore because geopolitics is, as I said earlier, not about military security and tanks. 
it's as much about the economy. So we're going to have to try to find the right, right balance here. There is another great question in your book. Uh, does this regulatory power or approach increases the cost or deter innovation? Uh, because there is a well-known criticism coming from the U.S. that goes by uh, the EU user regulation or sanctions on competences files, trying to help European companies, you know, uh, using rules to compensate what companies can achieve in the markets against the U.S. big innovators. Uh, what goes first? Are we a regulatory power because of the values of principles, or we become one as, let's say, a defensive skill? So I would start by saying that we need to take the question seriously as to whether the current level of regulation is optimal and how it impacts innovation. I remember talking to one um, Silicon Valley executive and I asked him what the difference is in, in dealing with European and American regulators. And he told me the following. He said that whereas the Europeans want us to innovate towards meeting the consumer need, the Americans want us to innovate to change the world or allow the world to be changed. And I think it is right that we would need to be concerned if all the companies in the world were limiting their innovative zeal towards satisfying a consumer need. Some of the most disruptive innovations would never take place. But that is not to say that regulation always means less innovation. Um, Alex and I come from Finland and the Nordic countries are some of the, the most regulated economies, but at the same time, some of the most competitive economies. We also see what the lack of competition regulation has done to American markets, which today are less competitive in many ways, where these excessively concentrated markets have increased the prices for consumers while then uh, increasing the profits for companies. So regulation does not need to be a problem, but we do need to be mindful every time we regulate that we are supporting the innovative spirit uh, and the entrepreneurship in Europe as well. But there's a lot that the EU needs to do in order to catch up when it comes to innovation or AI or create its own leading tech companies. And um, even though it today is the regulatory superpower, it shouldn't contend itself of being the referee. It needs to get on the field and it needs to play defense and it needs to play offense. And most importantly, it really needs to build the capabilities and the ecosystem for innovation. That the system to fund those innovation by completing the capital markets union. There's a lot to be done, but it, the debate is much more complex than just the question of regulation. I think that's a really key point that Anu makes there. And, you know, one of the things, I don't know if you guys noticed, but Europe always gets criticized for having lost the battle on tech. And I sort of always think, listen, the way in which tech develops is basically by the hour, by the week, by the month. Uh, and what we happen to do in Europe is that we sort of fight the old old wars, you know, to a certain extent oh my god we don't have google or we don't have amazon or we don't have facebook instagram uh, and twitter and i said well yeah that's right but look what the united states had in the 1990s in terms of telecom i mean they had motorola and at&t and the southern belts and a system which was all over the place when europe forged ahead in telecommunications 
uh, with Nokia, with Ericsson, and many others. So my argument is that we have to think that innovation, especially as it pertains to tech and say data, is completely fluid and out there for grabs. So if we start sort of stifling ourselves to death or regulating ourselves to death uh, in this field by not allowing innovation to happen, that's when we lose. So that's why I think we have to also understand that regulation must be smart regulation so that it leads to innovation in, in the long term. Let me turn the conversation to a more philosophical one. Uh, you said that the US is a technocratic power, and that makes sense precisely because the European Union, from the early beginning, was very reluctant to become a political one or to grow otherwise. There was too much politics in the past and they decided to go technical. You know, the corporate system, the monet way. Uh, diplomatic talks under the radar, economic slow steps, with no public opinion involved. A kind of enlightened absolutist, all for the European people, but never by the European people. But that has changed. It's not valid anymore. It's the classic von Middler script, you know. You know it well. Um, but now the, the European Union is way more political, and I guess that can or should lead to, to a change. As we become a, a different and more political union, what do you really expect? What's going to be the evolution of these technocratic regulatory powers? Well, I don't know. Arno, do you want me to take a stab at it first? Yeah, why don't you go first, Alex? <laughs> okay. So uh, he here's my two cents worth. Uh, I think your assessment, Pablo, is absolutely right. You know, we lived for many decades with the so-called Monet method. And in academic jargon, it's called the functional method, which basically means a top-down approach Uh, where integration in one area leads to pressure to integrate in another one. And all the decisions happen, I'll use slightly convoluted language, populist language, behind closed doors. And then the decisions, the regulation is just sort of dropped down upon the population. On the other side of the argument, you had perhaps what you could call the Spinelli school or the Federalists who argue that, no, 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 this needs to be a grassroots roots movement that happens from below and moves upwards. Uh, and I think one of the things that Europe has always struggled with is to try to find the balance between the two. So if you're a functionalist, you say, listen, it's a democratic union because the commissioners are nominated by the member states that are uh, democratically elected and then approved by the European Parliament, which are democratically elected. So in, to a certain extent, you could say that, listen, the, the, the secretaries of state, uh, secretaries of treasury in the United States, they're not elected either. They're nominated and then they go through a nom nomination procedure. That's fine. But the problem, I think, is broader than this. I think that uh, democracy, when it was founded, and you asked for a philosophical approach, you know, John Locke in the 1700s, for him, democracy was slow, It was cumbersome. It happened behind closed doors. It was compromise driven. You could take your time and it was messy. Nowadays, democracy, though, has to live in a completely different world, which is driven by technology and information, which is extremely fast. So the news cycle in John Locke's day was probably three months. Then it came down to 30 days. Then it came down to three weeks. Then it came down to three days then later on to three hours, and now it's pretty much three seconds. And I don't think any democratic system in the world has adapted to this. 
So I think once we start changing democracy as we know it, which is already happening, the European Union has to change with it. So yes, it will always have to be to a certain extent technocratic. And yes, it will have to have more democratic aspects to it. Final point, the only problem is that the member states do not want to give the power of democracy to the supranational level and the European Union. And that's, I think, uh, the problem. So that, that's great, Alex. Maybe just a, a quick addition of why the technocratic nature of the European power has served the EU's interests particularly well. And especially if we look at the, the number of different crises that the EU has had to weather over the last decade, and the technocratic power is particularly resilient to the crisis. So if you think about COVID-19, for instance, one of the reasons why I think the Brussels effect continues to uh, thrive is that it is not on the agenda of the, the political decision makers, the, the technocrats that are in charge or working on the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, they go to their desks every day and continue to work on those regulations, even if there's a major public health and economic uh, shock striking the heart uh, of the European Union and keeping the council busy from day and night. I think that's one of the reasons why the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, was not derailed, even though it went through the height of the migration crisis or the Brexit vote, because the technocratic timetable follows its own logic and its own dynamic, and it's not being um, uh, uh, interrupted, if you like, as much by um, some major developments. So in many ways, I expect the regulatory power to emerge rather strong, uh, even uh, from uh, this crisis. So that's one. I'm, I'm not at all selling short the importance of democracy or, um, or uh, discrediting some of the legitimate criticism. But um, there is a certain advantage that has kept Europe very strongly functional through the crisis, that its regulatory machinery has not been impacted by them. Yeah, and you know what? Let, let's be honest about democracy and bureaucracy, right? Uh, you know, I, I I've done both, <laughs> so so I hope at least I know what I what I what I'm talking about. But you don't have to go back to you know James Q. Wilson's uh, book from the 1980s called Bureaucracy to understand that in a democratic system, I would argue, and I'll just throw this number out. I don't have any mega evidence to back it up. But I would argue that 95% of things are decided by bureaucracies and uh, technocratic uh, regimes. And then 5% is decided on a democratic level by governments, uh, the executive, or by legislators, the parliaments. So that's the way in which the system works, whether you like it or not. I actually like the continuity of bureaucracies and technocratic regimes as much as I like the disruption of democracy. And this is the balance that we'll always be looking for. Uh, never underestimate the power of bureaucracies. It is big. Uh, what's the role of citizens in this debate? Because we talk about companies, regulation, states, but what about the citizens themselves? Uh, are they going to beneficial of this technology rise and this uh, technocratic approach and these regulatory powers? Or do you think they're going to suffer or are suffering and will suffer more in, in the future? So, so basically, when, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Anna, you shoot first. Yeah, and I just to tie to the earlier conversation and Alex's comments about bureaucracy. 
I think when you have transparent bureaucracy, it can be more accountable to the citizens as well. We actually know what the EU is doing. There's a lot of transparency and accountability through the outputs that the regulations um, that are being uh, promulgated and being enforced. And I think that helps us ensure that the bureaucracy and all that regulatory activity serves the citizens. And in many ways, I think that has been the, the biggest benefit of the, the European regulatory state is that it has really delivered many tangible benefits for all the citizens. Um, and that is something that I think sometimes has been undermined in the member state capitals when uh, Brussels hasn't been given due credit of everything that it has done and sometimes has been unfairly blamed for some of the, the dysfunction. But I think it's absolutely right that the citizens need to be at the center. And here I would draw a comparison to the, the United States and how regulation is being prepared and, and negotiated in the US and how, for instance, lobbying works. So Alex mentioned earlier how important lobbying in Brussels has become, but the lobbying is also more balanced. Uh, in the EU. So there's a lot of evidence now emerging how not only the big companies have access to the decision makers in the EU, but that kind of influence is very much balanced by the influence that citizens, consumer organizations, various uh, members of the civil society have in accessing the regulatory process and making sure that their views are being heard. And I think that is something that is important. It's much more legitimate if we have the transparency and the accountability and the citizen's voice being part of that decision-making. Yeah, here's, I mean, I think I agree with Arno, but let me deviate a little bit from the language used. I've always, and this is, I, I don't know why, but I've always had a problem uh, with the use of the word citizen. And probably my sort of aversion to the term comes from the fact that when I was in the European Parliament, many MEPs used to speak of citizens and themselves completely separately, sort of in third person, if you will, which always for me meant that, you know, the MEP is somehow different and above the citizens. I mean, the three of us having this conversation here today, we have slightly different backgrounds, but all three of us are citizens. So we're part uh, of a governance structure, a governance system, which is supposed to provide us with public goods. So at the end of the day, the question is about representation. And I remember actually writing a lobby report in the European Parliament. I was the rapporteur uh, for the first time sort of bringing uh, lobby organizations into, uh, into a registered system which made it quite quite different. And I always kept on saying that, listen, we should not differentiate between an NGO or between a company uh, or between a party, because all of them are in one way or another driving their own interests. So to a certain extent, they are citizen organizations. So if the aim of the company is to maximize, pro maximize profit, that's fine. That's what they do and that's what they lobby. If the aim of an NGO is to improve uh, the environment and fight against climate change, that's fine. That is their interest and that's what they drive. So they all have to be on the same line. And I just wonder, I think the big question that we're all struggling to find in this sort of new uh, world of, of, of technological democracy is that how do we guarantee representation for everyone? 
Well, we're used to having a representative democracy. Uh, do we have the courage to move to direct democracy? I would be rather skeptical about that, but we have to give a sense that everyone is involved in one way or another. And again, you're probably going to have as many views on this as you have citizens in Europe. Let's dedicate the last few minutes uh, to talk about the future. Uh, do you think that the EU can keep this position both as regulatory and trade superpower? Can it last? Because Anin explains in the book that over time the EU is going to lose a share of the global market positions. It happened already. Brexit is such a great example, with millions of citizens, companies and a share of global GDP living. Um, we can add the decline of multilateralism, the rise of China, the limits of globalization, I don't know. Uh, but, well, a point that she makes in the book as well, the end of the non-divisibility of productions. So what do you expect of the future? So that is obviously a huge topic and we could talk about it at length, but maybe I just uh, take on two specific challenges that I discuss in the book that could potentially uh, curtail the Brussels effect going forward. So one is the external challenge with the rise of China and other uh, countries that will uh, inevitably become more important markets and that will occupy a larger share of the global GDP. So I would not underestimate the growing importance, but I'm, uh, I do make the argument that the the Brussels and its regulatory power will outlive its economic power measured by the GDP alone. And one of the big reasons is that the regulatory power is more tied to the GDP per capita than the GDP. And it will be a long while before the Chinese consumers are so wealthy that there are real pressures to generate the kind of regulations that there are in the EU today. It takes a long while to build the kind of regulatory capacity that the Brussels has built, the kind of expertise and ability to really deploy that system. And I think the Beijing effect is not going to onset in the, in the next uh, decade and that we will see the EU be uh, uh, occupying the same uh, position as the regulatory superpower for much longer than some would predict. Um, another uh, the threat is obviously an internal one, so Brexit, and you're absolutely right, the EU is losing significant market share, which is a foundation for a regulatory power. You need to be a large market in order to be a unilateral global regulator. The EU is also, in my view, losing tremendous regulatory capacity with the UK leading. But in many ways, the EU is also losing an important constraint because the UK often brought that pro-markets voice to the table that was quite skeptical of regulation. And we might actually see now more regulation being pushed uh, from Brussels because the Franco-German interests have more space to dictate the, the, the content of those regulations. But I think the main argument about the UK, and this is now so topical as being in the final stretches of the uh, trying to see whether there will be a deal as the UK's transition period uh, in the EU comes uh, to the end. Um, and uh, there, the, the argument that I make is that in many ways, uh, the idea of regulatory sovereignty awaiting the UK on the other side of Brexit is an illusion. It was a false promise of the campaign. Uh, in many ways, it is the, the Brussels effect that will undermine Brexit 
and not the Brexit that will undermine the Brussels effect. So what we may end up seeing is that the UK companies will be living in an ever more regulated Europe after the Brexit has really been implemented because they have chosen to become a rule taker and not a rule maker. And they will be potentially taking those regulation in the all the more regulated European Union. And I would say not even potentially, but that's going to be their reality. And the irony, of course, of it all is that you're already now seeing British companies moving their production to the European continent. Even I think the funniest one is a company called Ineos, which is famous, I guess, for the chemical industry, but now also making cars. Uh, and its owner, founder and CEO was an avid Brexiteer guy. Uh, now running also one of the best cycling teams uh, in the world. But what did he do when they started to produce a car called the Grenadier? Well, he moved the factory to France or Spain. So, you know, I mean, it, it, it just, it, it, there's this sort of tremendous paradox in all of these. That the ones who wanted deregulation, they should have stayed in the European Union to be able to fight that course rather than, as Arno put it, going from uh, rule maker to, to rule taker. But I do think that the big question is going to be, you know, what happens with China uh, and Chinese regulation? Uh, I think China, if it is serious about expansion, the Belt and Road Initiative, it will have to continue to live by European regulation. But of course, uh, you know, if it starts pushing the China first bucket, uh, and believes that it can produce good services uh, and other things better than Europe, uh, then it's going to start putting up a fight. But I do think that the US and Europe will continue to be very integrated together in their regulatory frameworks. China is a bit more independent, a bit more of a maverick in this system, especially if and when data becomes the key um, commodity, if you will, uh, for regulation. Yeah, and I would, I would definitely um, agree with Alex when it comes to data and the digital Silk Road that China is building, rather assertively exporting its standards on um, surveillance technology. And that is exactly uh, the area where the US and the EU both have so much to gain if they want to develop joint regulatory approaches to ensure that we can have uh, the digital economy that will preserve the foundations of uh, liberal democracy and uh, that we will not all be living in a digital economy that rests on the Chinese norms of authoritarian surveillance. So that is something where I think the US and the EU should uh, both treat as a priority in their endeavors to reset the transatlantic relationship. One last question, one that you won't be accountable for in the future, so please speak your mind, because I don't think no one will get back to you in 30 years claiming you were wrong. Um, is the Beijing effect inevitable, or in 2015 we will talk about the Brussels effect and not the Chinese Beijing effect? Huh. Well, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll give you one general answer. general answer is that we human beings have a tendency to over-rationalize the past. So in 2050, Anu and I will have this podcast with you and say, we were right, because this is exactly what we were thinking at the time. Secondly, we have a tendency to over-dramatize the present. We don't think that there's anything more important in the world than the moment that we're living in at the moment. And it is so difficult because of Brexit and because of US elections and whatnot. 
And then thirdly, we have a capacity to underestimate the future. And I think I will continue to underestimate the future because, to be honest, I really don't know what the world is going to look like in 2050. Uh, had someone posed me that question in 20, I guess, no, 1990 it becomes, and said that, listen, you're going to be sitting in a flat in Florence, which was built in 1450, with your AirPods having a podcast conversation with someone in the United States and someone in Brussels for Spanish uh, media, uh, and everything is happening at the speed of light, I would have said, ah, come on, man, get a life. So therefore, I don't know whether it will be right or wrong, but I do think that integration will continue. So absolutely. I think if 2020 has taught us something is the difficulty of predicting uh, the world and that nothing is inevitable or um, the way that we thought uh, the future evolves. But in many ways, I would make a prediction, though, that with the values that are driving the European regulation, the EU has chosen to pursue a path that leaves it to say going forward, we were on the right side of history. That in many ways, I think the world, if anything, is converging towards the values that the EU has been advocating. The values of sustainability, uh, the, the idea of fundamental rights being central when we think about a data-driven economy, um, the safety of food uh, and uh, the chemicals, um, the idea how we think about protecting the consumers. Um, I think in many ways, uh, this is something where the EU will not be alone and whether it will be through the Brussels effect that those values are being transposed across the world. Um, those values will, I think, outlive uh, and, and will continue to, to shape the future. I hope so and I actually believe that it's more likely to be right. Well, nothing is inevitable but time and we need to end this lovely conversation now. Uh, thank you very much for listening to us. I hope it was interesting, dynamic or at least not boring for you both and for listeners. Alex Stuve in Florence, Anu Bradford in New York, thank you very much for your time and your insight. Um, stay tuned. There's more coming in the next weeks and months. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This is Argelia Keral again. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast as much as we have. As I said at the beginning, it was very worthwhile, wasn't it? So do not miss the next chapter of the series Agenda Pública Conversations. Bye-bye.